the Human History Podcast, an interlude. Today we're starting off with our very first weekly roundup. Um, I'm going to be sharing with you just some interesting stories from archaeology that I've come across, um, some interesting things that have happened over the past week. Um, Again, these episodes are just uh, kind of a way for me to be able to put out some more content for you guys Um, and just kind of a cool way to uh, stay up on all of the cool things that are happening in the world of archaeology. So let's get started. Um, So this story is from January 3rd, 2020. Uh, I really, I love the headline on this article. The headline is, it's from Live Science. Headline is, Demon with Forked Tongue Found on Clay Tablet in Library of Assyrian Exorcists. So, if that doesn't get you curious, then I don't really know what to tell you. So, there was uh, an Assyriologist... His name was, and I apologize if I do not pronounce this correctly. Um, his name is Trolls Punk Arbol. Uh, he's from the University of Copenhagen. Uh, he says he discovered a drawing of a demon on a cuneiform tablet uh, from 2,700 years ago uh, from the Neo-Syrian Empire. Um, the demon believes is uh, the demon is believed to be responsible for what the ancient Assyrians assumed was madness, uh, what we know today as epilepsy. Uh, In the drawing, uh, Arbel says you can see a demon with, quote, curvy horns, a serpent's tongue, and possibly a reptile-like eye. The creature has a long tail placed alongside the left leg, end quote. Uh, So the tablet itself is from the library of a Neo-Syrian exorcist who lived about 650 BC uh, in the city of Assur, uh, which the empire is named for, uh, which is, today it's in northern Iraq. Um, And the tablet describes the remedy for the symptoms of epilepsy, which uh, the Assyrians attributed to demonic possession, and they called it Bennu, uh, B-E-N-N-U. Um, and as Arbol describes, um, the Assyrians basically saw this demon as responsible for Bennu. Um, and uh, the demon is believed to actually act on behalf of the Mesopotamian moon god Sin, uh, who they saw as responsible for all madness, uh, which is interesting because we still have that connection today. Uh, you know, if you see our, our word lunacy, um, you can see the root of that it comes from Luna for the moon. So this idea of the moon being attached to madness uh, goes back a pretty long way. Um, and I'll post some pictures. They're pretty interesting. Um, I'll post some pictures of the tablet itself, um, and it'll show kind of where the, the demon drawing is, and then some 
representations of the demon draw excuse me of the demon drawing itself um so keep an eye out for that on the instagram page um so from january 8th it's the next story um there's a new translation of the most famous viking rune stone um so the most famous of all the viking runic monuments is the roke stone uh which was raised in the 9th century in uh pardon me for this uh pronunciation i did look it up so i hope that i'm close um but the stone was raised in Esterjutland uh and contains over 700 runic symbols so for over 100 years um it's been believed that the symbols depicted a battle and for all that time between then and now researchers have essentially been trying to connect uh real life historical conflicts uh with the story being told on this rune or in these runes excuse me um but a new study uh, was conducted with an interdisciplinary team which included researchers in textual analysis archaeology a new study was conducted with an interdisciplinary team which included researchers in textual analysis archaeology history of religions and runology uh from which they've reached a new conclusion about the battle being depicted in the symbols. Um, so it turns out, you know, it was there, there is a battle being depicted, but it's not quite what everybody had been thinking. Um, so in the report from the university of Gothenburg, uh, they said, quote, the study shows that the inscription deals with an entirely different kind of battle, the conflict between light and darkness, warmth and cold life and death. End quote. Uh, so, Bo Grossland, uh, who's a professor of archaeology at Uppsala University, uh, he described a series of events which occurred just prior to the erection of the Roke Stone, which may help to explain uh, the reason for why it was made. So, he says, quote, A powerful solar storm colored the sky in dramatic shades of red. Crop yields suffered from an extremely cold summer and later a solar eclipse occurred just after sunrise, end quote. So Vikings at this time were dealing with some pretty intense omens. Um, you know, as Professor Grassland says, uh, you know, either any one of those instances, um, you know, the colored red sky or bad crops from a cold summer, or a solar eclipse right after sunrise, any one of those things in and of themselves would have been enough to kind of shake the Vikings up a little bit and make them worry. Um, but they saw all three of them happen, which really seems to have set in this um, kind of intense worry. And they were ready to do just about anything to try and stop what they saw as an oncoming climate crisis, according to the researchers. So, study concludes that the runes contained nine different riddles, um, with the sun being the answer to five of them, uh, the other four dealing with Odin and his warriors. Uh, for example, one of the riddle asks, who was dead but now lives again? The sun. 
Um, you can kind of see that. Makes sense, you know, if there was an eclipse, you can kind of see that riddle coming about. Um, and yeah, so this is just, you know, it's really interesting. After 100 years, they were able to bring together this team, this interdisciplinary team uh, from these different fields to kind of bring a different perspective and understand that, yeah, I mean, we are seeing a battle being depicted here. Uh, which is what they've thought for a hundred years. Um, but it took them all this time to kind of realize, you know, they, they, they needed those insights from those different uh, disciplines, you know, from history of religions and runology. Um, you know, they really needed those insights to be able to kind of make the connections uh, that they needed to make. Um, which is really interesting and it shows it gives you some insight into how the viking leaders at the time saw themselves and their responsibilities which were which was you know as guarantors of a good harvest and they were the protectors of the balance between light and dark um, so you saw this erection of this rogue stone uh, as a response to these really terrible omens that they were seeing and it was you know, this massive effort by these Viking leaders to uh, kind of appease, appease the gods um, and to kind of head off uh, a climate crisis that they, that they saw, uh, that they saw coming for them. So it's really interesting. It's pretty cool. Um, something I would, I would really like to go and see that, that runestone at some point. I think that'd be pretty amazing. Um, so this is another <clears throat> excuse me another uh story from the 8th of january um this one's pretty crazy so in 2008 a team of archaeologists working near the british village of heslington unearthed a skull from a waterlogged pit uh, which surprisingly contained some well-preserved brain tissue um, after dating the skull they determined that it was around 2,600 years old, which is incredibly strange because generally, you know, brain tissue starts to decay immediately after death because um, it's really fatty. Um, and, you know, they did some preliminary investigations, which revealed that there was no attempt to preserve the skull uh, made at the time of death, uh, which just kind of as a side note, apparently... The skull that they found was from someone who had been uh, bludgeoned and decapitated. So tells you a little bit about the world 2,600 years ago. Um, or I don't know, you know, it could have been a very random, random instance of violence. But from, from everything that, uh, that we know about life back then, it, violence was a pretty, pretty common occurrence. Anyways. Um, so just recently, like I said, they first found the skull in 2008, but just recently the researchers decided to take a look at the brain tissue at the molecular level to see if they could find, uh, any evidence for presence of certain types of proteins, uh, which they know are a little bit more resistant to decay than some other materials in the brain. Um, and so this is from the phys.org article on the study, uh, quote, the researchers report that they found evidence of over 800 proteins in the brain sample. 
some of which were in such good condition they were still able to work up an immune response, end quote. That, that, is, that blows my mind. Um, and so basically what they wanted to do was try to figure out how it was that this brain tissue was able to preserve itself for so long. Um, and so they found these brain, these, these tissues, these proteins in the tissue, um, that they knew were pretty hardy. Um, but really, so another thing that they noted was the proteins had actually folded themselves up into what the researchers called tightly packed stable aggregates, um, which they say may partially explain why, uh, it didn't decompose as expected, because um, when uh, these aggregates form, they kind of seal themselves off and make it make themselves uh, really resistant to decay. Um, but another big piece of evidence the researchers believe is the environment that the tissue is found in. Um, it was surrounded by cold, wet, fine grain uh, sediment, which may have been able to lock out any oxygen. Um, which, you know, the microorganisms that facilitate the decomposition process need to survive. So it seems as though there was this combination of, you know, it got stuck in this really, really oxygen depleted environment. And then these proteins in the brain folded in on themselves after death um, and really protected themselves from... uh, being exposed to anything that may have caused them to start that decaying process. So it's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, 2,600 and I'll put a, we'll put a picture of that up as well uh, on the Instagram so you guys can see that. Um, It is pretty, you know, it's a brain. It's 2,600 year old brain, but it's very recognizable as brain. So just be wary. Um, You're a little queasy. I uh, may recommend skipping that picture. Um, maybe just go and uh, maybe just go check out the demon drawing and stick with that. Um, so another story um, comes out of uh, Southwest England. Um, a lot of stories out of England this week. <clears throat> Um, but there was a Roman era cemetery discovered, um, and it was, it's pretty interesting. So this interesting cemetery found in Somerset, uh, which is in the Southwest part of the country. Uh, they were, there was excavations going on for a new school. Um, and they stumbled upon this cemetery and they found the remains of 50 adults and children and the dating uh, put the cemetery in the uh, the Roman era. Um, so for some historical context, uh, after Julius Caesar uh, had some initial forays into Britain in 55 and 54 BC, um, the Emperor Claudius really established true Roman occupation predominantly in the southern part of England, uh, starting in about 43 AD. Um, so the cemetery was interesting for a couple of reasons, mainly for the way that the graves were constructed. Um, a lot of them were lined with local stone, but then capped off 
like a roof. Like they would build a little house almost uh, around these, around the people. Um, and one in particular actually was more like a tent-like structure um, built over over the remains, which is just really interesting. Um, so Steve Membry, who was an archaeologist and a uh, member of the group overseeing most of the excavation, said, uh, quote, most graves in Roman Britain are pretty much a rectangular cut with someone laid on their back. Uh, they've actually built these graves. They've actually built these graves. There's been a lot more care taken over these, end quote. Um, also interesting was, you know, the, there was some what they call uh, grave goods, uh, some of the items that were found with the remains, uh, which included pottery, jewelry, uh, coins, and carved bone. Um, and this is interesting because really what what the researchers are curious about now is whether this site is representing uh, early British, early Britons who had conformed to Roman customs after the occupation, or whether these were maybe citizens of the Roman Empire who uh, came from further afield, or maybe their children um, who wound up, who, who ended up moving to Britain uh, after the Roman occupation. Um, and it'll just be interesting because it'll just tell us more about the composition of the country at the time and give, you know, more information about, um, what sort of, uh, you know, ethnic blending was going on as far as whether Britain remained mostly, uh, homogenous after the occupation or whether, you know, large amounts of different groups of people from different parts of the Roman empire started making their way in. So it'll be interesting. They're going to do some more DNA testing, um, and they're going to re release the results. So we're going to stay updated on that. Um, last story that I want to share with you, this one is, this one's more just interesting for me. I find this one interesting. Um, <clears throat> I'm really curious about um, the way that archaeologists use uh, data and data analysis and um, different aspects of modern technology in archaeology. And so this story just kind of stuck out to me as being kind of cool. Um, so let me start out with saying there's a phenomena uh, which occurs within the subconscious of our brains that psychologists call pseudo-neglect. Um, it generally refers to the belief that healthy people tend to prefer their left field of vision to their right, which can cause them to divide a line regularly, divide a line regularly left of center. Um, and so a new study from a Slovak German research team uh, used the results of geophysical magnetic measurements to map the orientation of early Neolithic houses. Uh, and they determined that the houses have a slight and it's almost imperceptible uh, deviation from earlier houses and that this deviation is regularly counterclockwise. Um, archaeologist Dr. Niels Müller-Schubiel, um, I'm so sorry about that uh, pronunciation. I don't really know how to say that. Uh, Niels Müller-Schubiel, 
he coordinated the study. Um, and he said, quote, uh, researchers have long assumed that early Neolithic houses stood for about a generation, i.e. 30 to 40 years, and that new houses had to be built next to existing ones at regular intervals. By means of age determination using the radiocarbon method, we can now show that the new construction was associated with a barely perceptible rotation of the house axis counterclockwise. We see pseudo-neglect as the most likely cause of this, end quote. Um, so I just, I found it fascinating, you know, how researchers were able to use the differences in Earth's magnetic field to visualize archaeological features underground, um, and then apply a modern concept of psychology to show that humans' subconscious hasn't really changed much, you know, since the early Neolithic, at least that part of it. Um, and, you know, I found the, um, what really stood out to me was, uh, where they got their their data from um the geophysical magnetic measurements uh it's from just this huge growing data set uh in archaeology um that archaeologists are now having access to and it'll just be really interesting to see um kind of the direction that it takes as far as data analysis and uh, machine learning and um, using those sort of things to kind of, uh, you know, bring out different interpretations and, uh, squeeze out different information that maybe isn't quite as, uh, you know, quite as available right on the surface. Um, so I just thought that was kind of a cool example of, uh, some of the things that archaeologists are doing with some of these new data sets. Um, so that's, that's, that's our roundup for the week. Um, hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, I appreciate you being here. Um, I don't know if you've heard, but we are now on Apple podcasts as well. Um, so regardless of any, whatever platform you guys listen on, uh, it's really helpful if you guys can shoot over to iTunes, uh, look us up, leave a review, uh, you know, rate us. Um, it'd be really great. I should say, if you enjoy the show, go to iTunes, give us a rating, leave us a review. I don't know why I'm saying us. It's just me. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I'm working right now on the research for the Acadians, uh, and the other Mesopotamian empires episode. So that should be coming up here in the next couple of weeks or so. So keep an eye out for that. Um, other than that, thank you again for being here. And as always, be excellent to each other. <laughs> <laughs>